0: Chapter Ten of *The Way We Live Now*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. *The Way We Live Now* by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Ten. Mr. Fisker's success. Mr. Fisker was fully satisfied with the progress he had made but he never quite succeeded in reconciling Paul Montague to the whole transaction. Mr. Melmott was indeed so great a reality—such a fact in the commercial world of London—that it was no longer possible for such a one as Montague to refuse to believe in the scheme. Melmott had the telegraph at his command, and had been able to make as close inquiries as though San Francisco and Salt Lake City had been suburbs of London. He was chairman of the British branch of the company, and had had shares allocated to him, or, as he said, to the house, to the extent of two millions of dollars. But still there was a feeling of doubt and a consciousness that Melmott, though a tower of strength, was thought by many to have been built upon the sands. Paul had now, of course, given his full authority to the work, much in opposition to the advice of his old friend Roger Carberry, and had come up to live in town— "'that he might personally attend to the affairs of the Great Railway. "'There was an office just behind the exchange "'with two or three clerks and a secretary, "'the latter position being held by Miles grendall Esquire. "'Paul, who had a conscience in the matter "'and was keenly alive to the fact that he was not only a director "'but was also one of the firm of Fisker, Montague and Montague, "'which was responsible for the whole affair,' was grievously anxious to be really at work, and would attend most inopportunely at the company's offices. Fisker, who still lingered in London, did his best to put a stop to this folly, and on more than one occasion somewhat snubbed his partner. "'My dear fellow, what's the use of your flurrying yourself? In a thing of this kind, when it has once been set a-going, there is nothing else to do.' You may have to work your fingers off before you can make it move and then fail, but all that has been done for you. If you go there on the Thursdays, that's quite as much as you need do. You don't suppose that such a man as Melmot would put up with any real interference. Paul endeavoured to assert himself, declaring that as one of the managers he meant to take a part in the management, that his fortune, such as it was, had been embarked in the matter, and was as important to him as was Mr. Melmot's fortune to Mr. Melmot. But Fisker got the better of him, and put him down. Fortune? What fortune had either of us? A few beggarly thousands of dollars not worth talking of, and barely sufficient to enable a man to look at an enterprise? And now where are you? Look here, sir. There's more to be got out of the smashing up of such an affair as this, if it should smash up. "'and could be made by years of hard work "'out of such fortunes as yours and mine "'in the regular way of trade. "'Paul Montague certainly did not love "'Mr. Fisker personally, "'nor did he relish his commercial doctrines, "'but he allowed himself to be carried away by them. "'When and how was I to have helped myself?' "'he wrote to Roger Carberry. "'The money had been raised and spent "'before this man came here at all. "'It's all very well to say that he had no right to do it, "'but he had done it. "'I couldn't even have gone to law with him "'without going over to California, "'and then I should have got no redress. "'Through it all, he disliked Fisker, "'and yet Fisker had one great merit, "'which certainly recommended itself warmly "'to Montague's appreciation. "'Though he denied the propriety "'of Paul's interference in the business, "'he quite acknowledged Paul's right "'to a share in the existing dash of prosperity.' as to the real facts of the money affairs of the firm he would tell paul nothing but he was well provided with money himself and took care that his partner should be in the same position he paid him all the arrears of his stipulated income up to the present moment and put him nominally into possession of a large number of shares in the railway with however an understanding that he was not to sell them till they had reached ten per cent above par and that in any sale transacted he was to touch no other money than the amount of profit which would thus accrue what melmotte was to be allowed to do with his shares he never heard as far as montague could understand melmotte was in truth to be powerful over everything all this made the young man unhappy restless and extravagant he was living in london and had money at command but he never could rid himself of the fear that the whole affair might tumble to pieces beneath his feet, and that he might be stigmatized as one among a gang of swindlers. We all know how, in such circumstances, by far the greater proportion of a man's life will be given up to the enjoyments that are offered to him, and the lesser proportion to the cares, sacrifices, and sorrows. Had this young director been describing to his intimate friend the condition in which he found himself— he would have declared himself to be distracted by doubts, suspicions, and fears, till his life was a burden to him. And yet they who were living with him at this time found him to be a very pleasant fellow, fond of amusement, and disposed to make the most of all the good things which came in his way. Under the auspices of Sir Felix Carberry he had become a member of the Bear Garden at which, best of all possible clubs, the mode of entrance was as irregular as its other proceedings. When any young man desired to come in who was thought to be unfit for its style of living, it was shown to him that it would take three years before his name could be brought up at the usual rate of vacancies. But in regard to desirable companions, the committee had a power of putting them at the top of the list of candidates and bringing them in at once." Paul Montague had suddenly become credited with considerable commercial wealth and greater commercial influence. He sat at the same board with Melmott and Melmott's men, and was on this account elected at the Bear Garden, without any of that harassing delay to which other less fortunate candidates are subjected. And let it be said with regret, for Paul Montague was at heart honest and well-conditioned, he took to living a good deal at the Bear Garden. A man must dine somewhere, and everybody knows that a man dines cheaper at his club than elsewhere. It was thus he reasoned with himself. But Paul's dinners at the Bear Garden were not cheap. He saw a good deal of his brother-directors, Sir Felix Carbury and Lord nidderdale entertained Lord Alfred more than once at the club, and had twice dined with his great chairman amidst all the magnificence of merchant princely hospitality in Grosvenor Square. It had indeed been suggested to him by Mr. Fisker that he also ought to enter himself for the great Marie Melmott plate. Lord Nitterdale had again declared his intention of running, owing to considerable pressure put upon him by certain interested tradesmen, and with this intention had become one of the directors of the Mexican Railway Company. At the time, however, of which we are now writing, Sir Felix was the favourite for the race among fashionable circles generally. The middle of April had come, and Fisker was still in London. When millions of dollars are at stake, belonging perhaps to widows and orphans, as Fisker remarked, a man was forced to set his own convenience on one side. But this devotion was not left without reward, for Mr. Fisker had a good time in London. He also was made free of the Bear Garden as an honorary member, and he also spent a good deal of money. But there is this comfort in great affairs, that whatever you spend on yourself can be no more than a trifle. Champagne and ginger-beer are all the same when you stand to win or lose thousands, with this only difference, that champagne may have deteriorating results— which the more innocent beverage will not produce. The feeling that the greatness of these operations relieved them from the necessity of looking to small expenses operated in the Champagne direction, both on Fisker and Montague, and the result was deleterious. The Bear Garden, no doubt, was a more lively place than Carberry Manor, but Montague found that he could not wake up on these London mornings with thoughts as satisfactory as those which attended his pillow at the old manor-house." On Saturday, the 19th of April, Fisker was to leave London on his return to New York, and on the 18th a farewell dinner was to be given to him at the club. Mr. Melmot was asked to meet him, and on such an occasion all the resources of the club were to be brought forth. Lord Alfred Grendall was also to be a guest, and Mr. Cohenloop, who went about a good deal with Melmot, Nitterdale Carberry, Montague, and Miles Grendall were members of the club and gave the dinner. No expense was spared. Herr Vossner purveyed the viands and wines and paid for them. Lord Netterdale took the chair, with Fisker on his right hand and Melmot on his left, and, for a fast-going young lord, was supposed to have done the thing well. There were only two toasts drunk, to the healths of Mr. Melmot and Mr. Fisker, and two speeches were, of course, made by them. Mr. Melmot may have been held to have clearly proved the genuineness of that English birth which he claimed, by the awkwardness and incapacity which he showed on the occasion. He stood with his hands on the table, and with his face turned to his plate, blurted out his assurance that the floating of this railway company would be one of the greatest and most successful commercial operations ever conducted on either side of the Atlantic.' It was a great thing, a very great thing. He had no hesitation in saying that it was one of the greatest things out. He didn't believe a greater thing had ever come out. He was happy to give his humble assistance to the furtherance of so great a thing, and so on. These assertions, not varying much one from the other, he jerked out like so many separate interjections, endeavouring to look his friends in the face at each, and then turning his countenance back to his plate "'as though seeking for inspiration for the next attempt. "'He was not eloquent, but the gentleman who heard him "'remembered that he was the great Augustus Melmot, "'that he might probably make them all rich men, "'and they cheered him to the echo. "'Lord Alfred had reconciled himself to be called by his Christian name, "'since he had been put in the way of raising two or three hundred pounds "'on the security of shares which were to be allotted to him.' But of which in the flesh he had as yet seen nothing. Wonderful are the ways of trade. If one can only get the tip of one's little finger into the right pie, what noble morsels, what rich esculents will stick to it as it is extracted. When Melmot sat down, Fisker made his speech, and it was fluent, fast and florid. Without giving it word for word, which would be tedious, I could not adequately set before the reader's eye the speaker's pleasing picture of worldwide commercial love and harmony, which was to be produced by a railway from Salt Lake City to Veracruz, nor explain the extent of gratitude from the world at large which might be claimed by, and would finally be accorded to, the great firms of Melmont & Co. of London and Fisker, Montague & Montague of San Francisco." Mr. Fisker's arms were waved gracefully about. His head was turned now this way and now that, but never towards his plate. It was very well done, but there was more faith in one ponderous word from Mr. Melmott's mouth than in all the Americans' oratory. There was not one of them then present who had not, after some fashion, been given to understand that his fortune was to be made— not by the construction of the railway, but by the floating of the railway shares. They had all whispered to each other their convictions on this head. Even Montague did not beguile himself into an idea that he was really a director in a company to be employed in the making and working of a railway. People out of doors were to be advertised into buying shares, and they who were, so to say, indoors, were to have the privilege of manufacturing the shares thus to be sold." That was to be their work, and they all knew it. But now, as there were eight of them collected together, they talked of humanity at large, and of the coming harmony of nations. After the first cigar, Melmott withdrew, and Lord Alfred went with him. Lord Alfred would have liked to remain, being a man who enjoyed tobacco and soda and brandy, but momentous days had come upon him, and he thought well to cling to his Melmot. Mr Samuel Cohenloop also went, not having taken a very distinguished part in the entertainment. Then the young men were left alone, and it was soon proposed that they should adjourn to the card room. It had been rather hoped that Fisker would go with the elders. Nitterdale, who did not understand much about the races of mankind, had his doubts whether the American gentleman might not be a heathen Chinese, such as he had read of in poetry. But Mr. Fisker liked to have his amusement as well as did the others, and went up resolutely into the card-room. Here they were joined by Lord Grasslow, and were very quickly at work, having chosen Loo as their game. Mr. Fisker made an allusion to poker as a desirable pastime, but Lord Netterdale, remembering his poetry, shook his head. "'Oh, bother,' he said, "'let's have some game that Christians play.' Mr. Fisker declared himself ready for any game, irrespective of religious prejudices. It must be explained that the gambling at the bear-garden had gone on with very little interruption, and that on the whole Sir Felix Carbury kept his luck. There had, of course, been vicissitudes, but his star had been in the ascendant. For some nights together this had been so continual— that Mr. Miles Grendal had suggested to his friend Lord Graslow that there must be foul play. Lord Graslow, who had not many good gifts, was at least not suspicious, and repudiated the idea. "'We'll keep an eye on him,' Miles Grendal had said. "'You may do as you like, but I'm not going to watch anyone,' Graslow had replied. Miles had watched, and had watched in vain— and it may as well be said at once that Sir Felix, with all his faults, was not as yet a blackleg. Both of them now owed Sir Felix a considerable sum of money, as did also Dolly Longstaff, who was not present on this occasion. Latterly, very little ready money had passed hands, very little in proportion to the sums which had been written down on paper— though Sir Felix was still so well in funds as to feel himself justified in repudiating any caution that his mother might give him. When IOUs have for some time passed freely in such a company as that now assembled, the sudden introduction of a stranger is very disagreeable, particularly when that stranger intends to start for San Francisco on the following morning. If it could be arranged that the stranger should certainly lose, no doubt then he would be regarded as a godsend. Such strangers have ready money in their pockets, a portion of which would be felt to descend like a soft shower in a time of drought. When these dealings in unsecured paper have been going on for a considerable time, real banknotes come to have a loveliness which they never possessed before but should the stranger win, then there may arise complications incapable of any comfortable solution. In such a state of things, some Herr Vosner must be called in, whose terms are apt to be ruinous. On this occasion things did not arrange themselves comfortably. From the very commencement, Fisker won, and quite a budget of little papers fell into his possession, many of which were passed to him from the hands of Sir Felix, bearing, however, a G intended to stand for Grasslow or an N for Knitterdale, or a wonderful hieroglyphic which was known at the Bear Garden to mean D.L. or Dolly Longstaff, the fabricator of which was not present on the occasion. Then there was the M.G. of Miles Grendal, which was a species of paper peculiarly plentiful and very unattractive on these commercial occasions." Paul Montague, hitherto, had never given an I.O.U. at the Bear Garden, nor of late had our friend Sir Felix. On the present occasion, Montague won, though not heavily. Sir Felix lost continually, and was almost the only loser, but Mr. Fisker won nearly all that was lost. He was to start for Liverpool by train at 8.30 a.m., and at 6 a.m. he counted up his bits of paper and found himself the winner of about six hundred pounds." "'I think that most of them came from you, Sir Felix,' he said, "'handing the bundle across the table. "'I dare say they did, but they are all good against these other fellows.' "'Then Fisker, with most perfect good humour, extracted one from the mass, "'which indicated Dolly Longstaff's indebtedness to the amount of fifty pounds. "'That's Longstaff,' said Felix, "'and I'll change that, of course.' Then out of his pocket-book he extracted other minute documents, bearing that M. G., which was so little esteemed among them, and so made up the sum. "'You seem to have a hundred and fifty pounds from Grasslow, a hundred and forty-five pounds from Knitterdale, and three hundred and twenty-two pounds ten shillings from Grendel,' said the baronet. Then Sir Felix got up as though he had paid his score.' Fisker, with smiling good humour, arranged the little bits of paper before him and looked round upon the company. "'This won't do, you know,' said Nitterdale. "'Mr. Fisker must have his money before he leaves.' "'You've got it, Carbury." "'Of course he has,' said Graslow. "'As it happens, I have not,' said Sir Felix. "'But what if I had?' "'Mr. Fisker starts for New York immediately,' said Lord Nitterdale. "'I suppose we could muster six hundred pounds among us.' "'Ring the bell for Vosner. "'I think Carberry ought to pay the money as he lost it, "'and we didn't expect to have our IOUs brought up in this way.' "'Lord Knitterdale,' said Sir Felix, "'I have already said that I have not got the money about me. "'Why should I have it more than you, "'especially as I knew I had IOUs more than sufficient "'to meet anything I could lose when I sat down?' "'Mr. Fisker must have his money at any rate,' "'said Lord Nitterdale, ringing the bell again.' "'It doesn't matter one straw, my lord,' said the American. "'Let it be sent to me to Frisco, in a bill, my lord.' "'And so he got up to take his hat, "'greatly to the delight of Miles Grendel. "'But the two young lords would not agree to this. "'If you must go this very minute, "'I'll meet you at the train with the money,' said Knitterdale. "'Fisker begged that no such trouble should be taken. "'Of course he would wait ten minutes if they wished, "'but the affair was one of no consequence.' Wasn't the post running every day? Then Herr Vosner came from his bed, suddenly arrayed in a dressing-gown, and there was a conference in the corner between him, the two lords, and Mr. Grendal. In a very few minutes Herr Vosner wrote a check for the amount due by the lords, but he was afraid that he had not money at his bankers sufficient for the greater claim. It was well understood that Herr Vosner would not advance money to Mr. Grendal unless others would pledge themselves for the amount. "'I suppose I'd better send you a bill over to America,' said Miles Grendall, who had taken no part in the matter as long as he was in the same boat with the Lords. "'Just so. My partner Montague will tell you the address.' Then, bustling off, taking an affectionate adieu of Paul, shaking hands with them all round, and looking as though he cared nothing for the money, he took his leave. "'One cheer for the South, Central, Pacific, and Mexican Railway,' he said as he went out of the room. Not one there had liked Fisker. His manners were not as their manners, his waistcoat not as their waistcoats. He smoked his cigar after a fashion different from theirs, and spat upon the carpet. He said, My lord, too often, and grated their prejudices equally whether he treated them with familiarity or deference. But he had behaved well about the money, and they felt that they were behaving badly. Sir Felix was the immediate offender, as he should have understood that he was not entitled to pay a stranger with documents which, by tacit contract, were held to be good among themselves. But there was no use now in going back to that. Something must be done. Bosner must get the money, said Nitterdale. Let's have him up again. I don't think it's my fault, said Miles. Of course no one thought he was to be called upon in this sort of way. Why shouldn't you be called upon, said Carberry? You acknowledge that you owed the money. I think Carberry ought to have paid it, said Grasslow. "'Grassy, my boy,' said the baronet, "'your attempts at thinking are never worth much. "'Why was I to suppose that a stranger would be playing among us? "'Had you a lot of ready money with you to pay if you had lost it? "'I don't always walk about with six hundred pounds in my pocket, nor do you.' "'It's no good jawing,' said Nitterdale. "'Let's get the money.' "'Then Montague offered to undertake the debt himself, "'saying that there were money transactions between him and his partner.' but this could not be allowed. He had only lately come among them, and had as yet had no dealing in I.O.U.'s, and was the last man in the company who ought to be made responsible for the impecuniosity of Myles Grendel. He, the impecunious one, the one whose impecuniosity extended to the absolute want of credit, sat silent, stroking his heavy moustache. There was a second conference between Herr Vostner and the two lords in another room, which ended in the preparation of a document, by which Miles Grendahl undertook to pay to Herr Vassner four hundred and fifty pounds at the end of three months, and this was endorsed by the two lords, by Sir Felix and by Paul Montague, and, in return for this, the German produced three hundred and twenty-two pounds, ten shillings, in notes and gold. This had taken some considerable time. Then a cup of tea was prepared and swallowed, "'after which Nitterdale with Montague, started off to meet Fisker at the railway station. "'It'll only be a trifle over a hundred pounds each,' said Nitterdale in the cab. "'Won't Mr. Grendal pay it?' "'Oh, dear no! How the devil should he?' "'Then he shouldn't play.' "'That'd be hard on him, poor fellow. "'If you went to his uncle, the Duke, I suppose you could get it.' Or Buntingford might put it right for you. Perhaps he might win, you know, some day, and then he'd make it square. He'd be fair enough if he had it, poor Miles. They found Fisker wonderfully brilliant, with bright rugs and great coats with silk linings. "'We brought you the tin,' said Nitterdale, accosting him on the platform. "'Upon my word, my lord, I'm sorry you have taken so much trouble about such a trifle. A man should always have his money when he wins.' We don't think anything about such little matters at Frisco, my lord. You're fine fellows at Frisco, I dare say, here we pay up when we can. Sometimes we can't, and then it is not pleasant. Fresh adieux were made between the two partners, and between the American and the lord, and then Fisker was taken off on his way towards Frisco. "'He's not half a bad fellow, but he's not a bit like an Englishman,' said Lord Nitterdale as he walked out of the station." End of chapter 10.